first epistle of John. We've been studying the gospel of John, but this morning to the first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 1 at verse 1 to read through chapter 2, verse 2. We're looking at God's truth concerning our sin and misery as it's spoken of in God's word and summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. I'd like to read a familiar passage of 1 John 1, verse 1 and following. We hear the word of the Lord. You also notice, by the way, a clear connection here to the gospel of John. But the word became flesh, John says in his gospel. And here he talks about having seen and touched. 1 John 1 at verse 1, the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, And walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. God's holy word. Let's turn in the Forms and Prayers book, the Heidelberg Catechism. Forms and Prayers book. We turn to page 202. That brings us to the first section of the Catechism, Man's Misery, Part 1. And Lord, stay two there, questions 3, 4, and 5. Page 202, question 3 asks, how do you come to know your misery? And the answer is, the law of God tells me. Then it's asked, what does God's law require of us? And the answer is, Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
Question five, can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Let's bow in prayer and ask for God's help. O great God, Lord of battles, to you we come, rejoicing in Jesus Christ, the mighty warrior who has won the victory, who fights against the evil one, and even the wicked thoughts within us. We pray he'd come by his spirit to teach us truth, to subdue us beneath his word, to strengthen our repentance, to grow us in the knowledge of our sin, and thereby in the appreciation of our Savior. God, help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ Jesus, this morning the the ship sets sail, as it were. We were in Lord's Day 1 surveying the map, right? Question and answer 1, what's your only comfort in life and in death? That we belong to Jesus. So he's taken away our sin. He set us free from Satan's grip. He's watching over us so all will turn out for our profit. This is my great comfort. And then question two, what do you have to know to live and to die in the joy of that comfort? What do you have to know to live daily in that comfort? What do you have to know to die? To die in that comfort? Well, three things, right? Our, our sin or guilt. And then our, our salvation or God's grace in Christ. And then thirdly, how to serve the Lord in gratefulness. We remember those words, sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, gratitude. And as we noted last time, that's actually not just the the essentials of uh, of the gospel truth, of the word of God, but those are the three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism as it, it follows that through, that outline that's really found in the book of Romans. That's how Romans is organized, sin, salvation, service. And so now we begin in Lord's Day 2, to set sail, to launch out, and we come to this opening Lord's Day of this first section, which actually is the shortest of all three sections. It's only three Lord's Days long. Number two, three, and four are about our misery. When you get to number five, it's about deliverance. But two, three, and four are about our sin and misery. It's the smallest section, but it's essential, isn't it? It's essential, because there's There's no desire for a Savior. There's no appreciation of a Savior if there's not a deep and profound sense of need, right? When sin becomes irrelevant, then so does the Savior. When sin becomes irrelevant, then so does a Savior. So the Lord's Day asks us, how do you come to know your misery? And misery here doesn't mean simply how I feel. Misery includes our sin and guilt, but also all the consequences of it, including the wrath of God. So we're talking about misery as Jesus teaches that to us. This morning we're glad that we have a Savior who tells us the truth about our misery. I'd like to look at our misery as taught by Christ under four headings. First of all, the mystery of our misery, and then the measure of our misery, and then the magnitude of our misery, and then finally the mercy that overcomes our misery. So first of all, the mystery of our misery. The Catechism asks, how do you come to know your misery? And it's kind of, it strikes us maybe as a silly question. I mean, you don't ask people, you know, well, how do you know you're miserable? They tell you, I'm miserable, right? If you have excruciating pain, nobody has to tell you you're hurting. You know, I'm hurting. If everything's gone to garbage at work, then, then you don't want somebody rubbing in you. you. You know it's not been a good day at work. Or do we? I mean, you can imagine a scenario when you thought you did everything great at work. And you discovered you had missed crucial steps or you had used the wrong tool or the wrong calculation. Everything you did is wrong. 
You could think you aced the test at school and discover after it was graded that, that the formula you were using was incorrect. No, we don't naturally know how bad things are. It's been said that the trouble with most people is that they don't know the trouble they're in. The trouble with most people is they don't know their trouble. People profess to be miserable, but they don't appreciate their deepest misery. They don't understand what they were made to be. They don't understand they were made in the likeness of God. They don't remember these things, and so they're not aware of their deepest miseries. They're not even aware of the sorrows that they feel and experience, that those things are rooted in our rebellion back in the garden. Remember that striking statement of the Lord Jesus to the lukewarm Laodiceans in Revelation 3 when he said, You say, I am rich, I am wealthy, I have need of nothing. You say, but I tell you, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. How could they not know? First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But how can we confess our sin if we don't know it? Sometimes it takes so long for us to realize our sin, doesn't it? You've had that before, haven't you? Where you, you held out, maybe. I know I have. You held out. I'm not the one in the wrong. You are. It goes on for a long time. Maybe it's, it's happened, children before parents, insisting they're not wrong, or siblings against one another. Maybe in a marriage, one person says, I'm not wrong. You are. And it goes on for a long time, and then maybe the Lord humbles you, and you look back and say, how did I not see it? How did I not see it was me? If you confess your sin, if we don't know our trouble, we can't appreciate the solution. You can't prescribe a cure before you diagnose the disease. When we go to the mechanic, we say, you know, it's making this kind of noise and that kind of noise, but you've got to do the work here. And he says, I'll look at it, I'll figure it out, and we find comfort in that. He's going he's to find out what's wrong so it can be fixed. Same thing with the doctor. We describe symptoms. But we want to know what's at the root. How, how deep does it go? Everybody knows something is wrong. Every decent novel or neighbor or university professor can tell you things are wrong. Everybody knows things are wrong. But who is qualified to tell us what's really wrong? Our misery. Who can give us the official diagnosis? Who's competent to judge? You see, this is the mystery of our misery, that everybody knows something is wrong, but nobody seems to know what's really wrong. Why is it so difficult to assess? Why is there so much confusion? Why do all the solutions of of government agencies and, and science and popular opinion, why do the solutions, why haven't they fixed the world? Well, Because the wrong diagnostic tools are often being used. Let's consider, secondly this morning, the measure of our misery. What's the standard by which to evaluate misery? That's our second point, the measure of our misery. How does the doctor diagnose our sickness? Well, he's gone to school to study what a healthy body looks like, right? So he does the scan and he says, well, a normal heart, a healthy heart looks like this. Yours looks like that. A healthy kidney looks like this. Yours looks like that. 
Or you get the, the lab, the blood lab results back, and it has, you know, all the things, potassium, whatever, has all the normal ranges, and then it has where you fall. Are you in the norm? Are you normal? Well, what's the norm for the creature of God, the image bearer? The norm is God. You've been made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. And what is that? You've been made in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. The norm is God himself. And where do you, where do you see God in his righteousness and holiness? You see him in his law. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. The law of God. The law of God can be compared to a portrait, right? Somebody paints a likeness of someone, hang it on the wall, where the law of God is the reflection of, of God. These, these statutes, these laws of the Lord are, are not them things God just picked out of thin air. He didn't just kind of make it up as he went. It, it comes out of his own being. The law of God is also a mirror, though, we say, right? Because as we look in the law, we see ourselves and say, hey, I don't look like God. There's dirt all over my face. The law of God can also be compared to a ruler straight edge. We think we drew a pretty straight line until we put the ruler next to it and say, hey, it's, it's curved, it's crooked. The law of God can be compared to a scale. As we step onto the scale of God's law, we are found wanting. Romans 3, verse 20 tells us, it's not by deeds of the law that we're declared righteous before God. That will never do. But it's through the law that we become conscious of our sin. Romans 3.20. But you see, the law is the law of God. It's based on his authority. I am the Lord your God. These are my laws. There's a will that's higher than ours, isn't there? There's a will that's higher than ours. Now, that's really important, isn't it, in our culture of individualism, self-expression, where we're told be True to yourself, that is the norm, right? Be true to yourself, discover who you are, you be you, I'll be me, whatever works for you. Figure out your life goals and then get a life coach to help you meet your goals. Jesus teaches us this morning that we were made for God. Our lives were created for the Lord God. The reason we exist at all is because God made us for himself. When we forget that, we think these lives are our lives, then you know what? Then we don't see sin. Because if this is my life and these are my goals, well, I can easier meet my goals than I can meet God's goals. And I might feel like I'm doing pretty good. Now, Romans 2 tells us that even the unbeliever has the works of the law written on his heart. And so everywhere you go in the world, there's a sense of, of morality, of right and wrong. People have sent some obligation towards their neighbor. But you see, until we know that the law is the law of God, we are not sufficiently humbled. Lots of people have rules for not killing people and lots of reasons why we shouldn't kill people, right? But those reasons don't convict of sin. Some say you shouldn't kill others because it's not reasonable. And then we say, well, why should reason govern my life? I like, to, I like to live by emotions, and I'm angry at him. I might kill him. Someone says, well, well, the rules of society say you shouldn't kill your neighbor. And maybe you say, well, I don't like society. I'd like to transform it. Somebody says, well, you shouldn't kill because your parents told you not to. Your government tells you not to. And you say, well, who are they to tell me? 
What say do they have in my life? You see, increasingly so, our culture feels no obligation. It's really remarkable, isn't it, in our culture, how, how any sense of shame is disappearing. Any sense of shame. And things are utterly reversed. That things people used to be ashamed about now, they boast of. And they would shame you if you don't accept it. And even sense of moral responsibility in communities. I mean, if you go to your neighbor because his garbage is blowing all over the street and say, hey, garbage is blowing. He says, yeah, I see that. You say, well, that's not real nice for your neighbors. He might just curse you out. You see, until we know there's a will higher than our will, until we know the law has divine authority, until we know it's the law of God, then we are not sufficiently humbled. I am the Lord your God. This is my law. And that means that it doesn't doesn't adjust to us and it it can't be erased and it doesn't develop over time. I mean, isn't that the way many people think of the law today? President Joe Biden used to be firmly against homosexual marriage and now he's an advocate. So what happened? Righteousness is changing. We're growing. No. No. God's law doesn't change. He's the creator of the universe. And so we know that the law is the environment in which we are made to flourish, right? And if we're outside the law, we're like a fish out of water. We're not going to be happy. We're like a train off its tracks. But it's not just that that if you walk in the law, you can live your best life. It's that if you're not walking in the law, you have gone to war against the king. And so we must be bowed before the Lord. It's his law. And if we're bowed and say, well, Lord, what does your law say? Is it a complicated thing like the tax code? Jesus says, actually, very simple. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as you love yourselves. Simple, but it's everything, isn't it? To love God with all of our heart, the very core of our being should all be directed to the living God himself. That we should desire him as our highest good, that we should esteem his glory and praise and honor above everything. With all of our soul, all of our emotion set for God, with with all of our will, all of our choosing, with all of our mind, every thought taken captive to obedience to Jesus Christ, using our intellect to know God, to think God's thoughts, using our imagination, not for the fantasies of indulging our pleasure or the greatest vacation ever, but thinking about the glories of the Lord and what he has in store for us. All of our strength, the physical energy, the mental energy, the emotional energy for the Lord our God, and then to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. What's good for him? What's good for her? What would I want somebody to do for me in that circumstance? How can I seek that person's greatest good? That is the measure that God uses. But applied to us, what's the conclusion? Well, that brings us to the third point, the magnitude of our misery. The magnitude of our misery. Do we live up to this law? No, we fall short. Let's look at that thirdly. The Lord's law requires both external and internal obedience. It certainly requires external, right? 
And, and the standard of, of love is not one we invent, right? It's not whoever's singing on the radio or whatever. Whatever they say about love, that's what love is. No, we, we know their standards. If you engage in sexual immorality outside of marriage, it is not love, period. It's not love. If you use your words to tear people down or destroy, it's not love, period. But it goes beyond that. Christ seeks our whole heart. Remember years ago, there's a young man studying for, I think he was, wanted to be in the part of the pipe fitters uh, group, and uh, he had to learn welding, and, and he told me that his test, when he finished schooling, his test would be to do a weld, and they would subject it to an x-ray. That's the first time I'd heard of that. That they can x-ray a weld, and they can see not just on the top, does it look good, but have the metals fused? Is the weld pure? Are there any cracks in it? Oh, that's fascinating, isn't it? I thought a well was just a well. Looks good to me. Oh, no. Oh, no. We might have the externals. We look welded to God, but the Spirit searches. Is our heart fused to God? Do we love him from the core of our being? The Bible speaks of our failures uses different words for sin, right? Trespass, transgression, iniquity, and so forth. But if we think of two categories, clearly one category is the the trespass or the transgression, which is the idea that God has set boundaries and we step over them. You see along the road sometimes no trespassing signs, right? You can't hunt here. This is not your property. This is the boundary of my property. Don't cross over. Well, the Lord God has set up boundaries, hasn't he? He said, these are the parameters. This is the fence. You live within this. And we step over it all the time with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions. But sin is also spoken of in the Bible with a word that means to miss the mark. And if you ever thrown darts or shot a basketball, you know what that's about, missing the mark. But especially in Bible times, right, it was archery to, to fire an arrow, but it veers to one side, then to another side, then above, then below. We, we miss the mark all the time. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark of God's glory. Think about the arrows God has given to us, our time, our strength, our opportunities, our relationships. Will they hit the mark? We have opportunity right now in worship, right? We've, we've been given the arrow of worship, and we're firing it right now, and we get to the end of the service, we can say, did it, did it meet the mark? Did it hit the bulls? I will be able to finish the worship service. And said, that was perfect. My every thought, my every affection, my perfect attention, all given to God. What about our labors at work this past week? Will we say that, that our labors hit the bullseye. I was never lazy, never grumbled. It was all on the mark. What about our relationships with brothers and sisters in the church? Have we hit the mark? What about our relationships in the home? Have we hit the mark? You know, we're talking about throwing darts or shooting basketballs or firing arrows, we, we might think, well, you know, 5 out of 10, 7 out of 10, that's pretty good. And yet we know that we were designed for perfection. And one miss is offensive to God. 
With basketball or darts, you know, we say, well, there's nothing moral about it. You know, after a basketball game, send your son to his room for the next year because he missed a basketball shot. It's different here, isn't it, with the law of God? How bad is it, really? We ask the mechanic, how much damage? We confess this morning, how bad is it, really? I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. Wow. To hate God and my neighbor. That's too strong, we might feel. I mean, I, I get mixed up at times. I get distracted, but to think that my heart apart from Christ hates God and hates my neighbor. Or we even look at unbelievers and we think, you know what, I, I have some neighbors and they are clearly, they are, are clearly amused with all the toys and pleasures of this world. They're not religious people, but I wouldn't want to say they hate God. I wouldn't want to say they hate their neighbors. But what does the word say? Romans 8, verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. The carnal or fleshly mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law and it cannot do so. And what did Paul say to Titus? That he said, we used to be among those who were deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Hateful and hating one another. And so it turns out that our arrows are not missing the bullseye, even missing the target, just sort of because that's what we do to err as human. It turns out that our arrows are missing the mark at times because we turn around and fire one into the guy who keeps telling us to hurry up. And the guy shooting next to us is doing better than we are. Hateful and hating one another. That's our natural inclination. And if we think, no, could it be? You turn to the end of the Bible, Revelation 16. The fourth bowl of God's judgment or wrath is poured out. And you read, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Isn't that horrifying? People are suffering the very wrath of God. And they would rather blaspheme than bow. They will go to hell cursing God. Hateful. Hating God. Hating neighbor. But where's the good news this morning? good news is that the God who tells us all this is the Lord of mercy. And he tells us because he loves us. So we've seen the mystery of our misery, the measure of our misery, the magnitude of our misery. But finally, the mercy that overcomes our misery. No one in all of the world will accept all the things I just told you unless they hear the good news. That in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness. The God who exposes the magnitude of our sin is the merciful covenant Lord. And we will only deny the verdict. We will only justify ourselves. We will only excuse ourselves. We will only blaspheme God unless we know 
that mercy is found with the Lord, that there are open arms for the prodigal son, that we may run home and be welcomed. We need grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage to be my people. Seek the Lord he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Turn to the God who pardons. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a glorious verse, isn't it? It requires that we confess our sins, not that we confess our neighbor's sins, not that we confess our son's sins or our wife's sins or our elder's sins or our preacher's sins if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive. He's faithful. He keeps his word. What did God say through Jeremiah? He said, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. But interestingly, the Spirit through John here says that God is also just or righteous to forgive our sins. And we might think, what does that have to do with forgiveness? I thought justice was about condemnation or acquittal. Mercy has to do with forgiveness, but justice has to do with pronouncing someone guilty or innocent. What does justice have to do with forgiveness? Well, we know that the cross of our Lord Jesus was all about justice, wasn't it? Where God meted out the punishment that we deserved. The only moral basis upon which God can forgive anyone It's the atonement of the Lord Jesus that our sins have been paid for. And our God will never punish sin twice. So if you say Christ died for all my sins at the cross, then you must know that there is no remaining payment for you. God forgives upon the sure foundation of our Lord Jesus And so God can be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God can be both just and the one who justifies the ungodly. Isn't that amazing? Because Christ bore our guilt and obtained for us righteousness. And John says he will forgive our sins. He'll give us a new record. Expunge all the crimes and he'll cleanse us. He'll purify our hearts because sin is both guilt and stain. What a joy to be reconciled to the Lord God. What a glorious promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Why would we not want to confess sin? Why would we be slow to confess sin? Is there ever a place in your life where you can look back and say, I am so glad that I did not confess my sin earlier. I am so glad I held out. You know, it was the best thing at work that I did not say I was sorry till the boss did. That was the best thing with my parents, that I refused to acknowledge my sin until they did. It was the best thing for my marriage. I held out and would not say I was wrong till he did. When I kept silent, 
My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Aren't you glad you have a Savior who brings you to your knees, who presses his law against you, who refuses to let you die in your excuses and self-deceit, but he shows us our sin. We might come and confess it freely and live in the joy of forgiveness. Praise be to our Lord Jesus. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, how we thank you that you speak the truth to us, your people. It is a hard truth, and we need it because we are naturally a hard people. We thank you that you don't simply beat upon us with your law, but your spirit brings inward conviction, and that he opens our eyes, that he brings us low, that he renews us, so that we with heart and sincerity can say, Lord, we have sinned against you. And we have sinned against one another. And we've sinned against our neighbors. Father, we pray that you would strip from us all of our excuses, all of our self-justification, all of these things that give the appearance of comfort but leave our hearts still aching, our relationship with you and others still unreconciled. Father, grant us the grace to confess our sin before you and to know the blessedness of forgiveness. Thank you, God, for the work you've done in our lives, for the work that you are doing. In Jesus' name, we give you praise. Be magnified in your grace, O Lord. Amen.